from the cross. We know that during this time, we celebrate his death and his resurrection. But tonight, I, I felt like God wanted us to just kind of pause and take a, a longer look at the cross. I, I remember singing in seminary a song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. And that song is it's, it's a powerful song, and it, it, it focuses on the cross of Jesus. Now, there was nothing significant about the cross in that day, right? The most vile, the most wicked, the most meaningless criminals were crucified by the Roman Empire. The Romans used crucifixion as a statement to the world. Do not mess with Rome. The Persians invented crucifixion, but the Romans perfected it. They'd often crucify a, a person in a kind of a seated position on the cross. And it would cause the pain to be even more excruciating because of the awkward positioning on it. To breathe on the cross, it was a laboring event. Oftentimes, the person being crucified would have been already scourged. So to just to breathe they would have to brush up against the coarse wood that they were nailed to. It was a gruesome sight. It was unlike any other method of putting out someone's life that has ever been invented. And this is where our Savior went for us. But while he was on the cross, there are several statements that he made. Now, time won't permit for me to to speak to each of the statements, but we're going to look at a few of them tonight. I want you to see the first statement. It's in Luke 23 and verse 33 and 34. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and one on the left, I want to just take a moment and pause there for a moment. They crucified him. The crucifixion of Jesus is the most important act by the most important person that ever walked the planet. You know that the crucifixion of Christ is referenced in many ancient secular histories. There's no shortage of extra biblical literature that mentioned Jesus and his death on the cross. Just to name a few tonight, a letter that was written by Marabar Seraphian to his son in AD 73. Josephus, the Jewish historian, circa AD about 90. Tacticus, the Roman historian in AD 110 through 120, wrote about Jesus and his crucifixion. The Babylonian Talmud references the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, our faith is a founded faith. It's not a fairy tale. And what was so significant about Jesus and his crucifixion? Because he was the son of God. He was the sinless lamb of God. And they came to the place called Calvary. Or in the Hebrew, Golgotha. And it means the hill of the skull. Some say that that hill even resembles a skull. And maybe it was because when God was creating the world, when he was creating that hill, he knew that that would be the place. 
where my son would die. Jesus made that walk to the hill of the skull, and there they crucified him, and he and two other criminals. And he speaks, and then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. The words of Jesus, his very first words, I believe, on the cross was, Father, forgive them. You see, the love of Jesus never fails. I'll say it again. The love of Jesus never fails. On the cross, he prayed for his executioners. He asked God, the Father, not to hold this sin against them. Oh, the love of Jesus. We know that it was our sin that nailed him to that cross, though. It wasn't the executioners. I heard about a three-year-old named Sean who went to church on Easter with his dad. And his dad wanted to explain to his son the meaning of Easter. So he tried to explain the significance of the cross, which hung in the front of the church. And he said, Jesus died because people nailed him to the cross. The little boy's eyes opened wide and he scanned the church. He asked his dad, you mean these people? And truth of the matter, it was my sin that nailed him to the cross. It's your sin. He could have called 10,000 angels. You know, he was there on that cross Paying the penalty for our sin. And so even in his time of suffering, physically, beyond what we can comprehend, emotionally and spiritually, as he bore the sin of the world upon himself, he still had his enemy's best interest at heart. Maybe you've heard of Madeleine O'Hare. I was reminded of her this week, and she was the founder of the American Atheist Association, and She uh, was responsible for having the public reading of the Bible removed from public schools. And Life magazine referred to her as the most hated woman in America in her day. Sadly, she, uh, she took her own life after a long battle with depression. And when they began to search her home, they found her diary. And there was a statement that, was found over and over again in her diary, and it was this statement, will somebody somewhere please love me? Will somebody somewhere please love me? You know that Jesus loved her. And you know, it stung to me once again, uh, fresh this week, that when Jesus told us that we should love our enemies, that we should do good to those who hate us, that we should pray for those who spitefully use and abuse us and persecute us. And this is what Jesus is embodying on the cross because you and I, we were at enmity with God. We were enemies of God. There was none who sought after God. There was none that do good, no, not one. We were in direct rebellion to God. And yet while we were in that state, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I want to just... Hit somebody maybe in the heart tonight and just remind us that when people come up against us in this culture, when they hate us, when they revile us, when they accuse us and persecute us, 
Let the words of Jesus ring true in our hearts. Let his spirit fill us so that we can respond like he responded, so that we can love those who hate us, so that we can be the hands and feet of Christ in this generation. God forbid that we would uh, we would fight, that we would be anger-filled, that we would be wrathful towards these people who do not know what they do. Jesus He said, Father, forgive them. He's interceding on their behalf. Jesus understood their blindness. It did not excuse the guilt. But Jesus interceded on behalf of these people before the Father. He he wanted them to be viewed in the best light possible before the throne of heaven. And we must ask the Lord to help us to pray with the same heart and the same pattern. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Once you see the second statement tonight, the Bible says in Luke 23, 43, And Jesus said to them, assuredly, to him, excuse me, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As we read a moment ago, Jesus was crucified with two others, two other criminals, two thieves, who were very much guilty of the crime that they had been accused of. There was one on the right hand, there was one on the left. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 53 and verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was with common criminals as he died. We know that at the top of his cross, it was customary that they would put the crimes of the individuals who were being crucified on the top of the cross. And we know that on Jesus' cross, all they could put was that he was the king of the Jews because he was perfect. He he was completely sinless. But these two thieves, they were guilty. And there on the cross, they joined the crowd for a moment to blaspheme Jesus. They said, if you are the Messiah, if you are who you say you are, then get us down from here. And with their final breaths, they they blasphemed Jesus. But one of the thieves would soon believe on him. I found that to be interesting that they both begin mocking him in, in the beginning, but at some point, the thief who would believe had a change of heart. He repented. Oh, was it maybe because the sun refused to shine? At the highest point of the day, the hottest, was it because Jesus never responded to their mocking and he prayed on their behalf? I don't know what it was, but he would soon change his tune. And he would speak to his accomplice who would not, even in his dying breath, he would not humble himself. And he said to him, do you, do you even fear God? <laughs> he said, we are under the same condemnation and we justly, he knew that he was guilty, this man. We are getting the due reward for our deeds, but this man, he knows no sin. He's perfect. He called Jesus and he looked to Jesus and he 
He called him Lord. I want you to see that. I mean, just, just think about this. Jesus is on the cross right next to him, but yet he called him Lord. And he believed on him in that setting. He said, oh, the faith of this man on the cross. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. And then Jesus' words from the cross. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This thief believed his promise of everlasting life. Jesus said, assuredly. When Jesus responded to the faith of this criminal, he assured him that his life after death would be with Jesus. It would be in paradise, not in torment. Oh, isn't this something? This is truly amazing. This is the closest thing that you see in Scripture to a deathbed conversion. It's the only biblical example of a last-minute salvation. And I think this is important that we understand why God doesn't highlight that more and in the Bible, I believe it's so that no one would despair, number one. It's possible that someone can be saved at the last hour, the last second of their lives. It's possible. But also, we should not presume that we will have the time or even be in the frame of mind to make that decision when we're in our last hour. None of us know when our last hour will be. And so God... And his providence, I believe, only gave one example in Scripture. But I want you to see this example was one that should be followed. And this man believed on Christ. He trusted on him. Even though it looked to be like the situation was hopeless, he said, remember me when your kingdom comes. And Jesus responded, and he gave him far beyond what he expected. He gave this thief, listen to this, the thief on the cross He had a distant time in mind, right? When your kingdom comes, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But Jesus told him, today you will be with me. Today. (laughs) The thief on the cross asked only to be remembered. He didn't, he knew he didn't deserve to to receive anything from God. He knew that he was a guilty uh, before a righteous God. But he says, just remember me. Will you remember me? And Jesus said, you will be with me. I won't have to remember. You'll be with me. (laughs) The thief on the cross looked only for a kingdom, but Jesus promised him paradise. Paradise and Far better than a kingdom, paradise, you'll be with me. And I want to just stop here for a moment tonight and just ask the question, have you looked to Jesus for your salvation? Have you called on his name? He was able to save this man who was guilty, who was condemned to die, who had but a few hours before he would pass into eternity. He was so close to dying and being separated from God for all of eternity, but he repented on the cross. He changed his mind about God. He turned in faith, and Jesus responded to that 
faith. And tonight, it's not too late for any of you in this room to do the same. Any of us who are watching online, Jesus wants to save you. He says, today, you would be with me in paradise. So this, uh, this thief, that day on the cross, when he took his last breath, you see, they broke his legs and the one next to Jesus, his legs, the other thief, too. Because sometimes crucifixion would last longer than they would like. Sometimes days. But they broke their legs. They didn't break Jesus' legs. We're going to see later that he, he gave up the ghost. He, he, he was in control to the very last moment. He gave up his life. And, but this man, he would take his last breath and then he would wake up with Jesus. <laughs> The Bible is true when it says to be absent for the body for, for a believer is to be present with the Lord. And uh, it's because of the cross. It's because of the cross. Let's look at the next statement. Verse uh, John 19, verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Woman, behold your son. Now, this is a statement. Once again, when he says woman, it's, a, it's an endearing statement. It's not like how we say woman to our wives. Like, woman, I heard you. You know, <laughs> it's not like that. It's not like that. It's an endearing term. And I think some commentators and, and some that have uh, studied this text, believe that Jesus chose to call her woman instead of mother at this time because for him to call out to her as mom, it would have been even more painful for her to see him there on the cross. He was there. And any parents in here tonight, could you imagine? You know, I had to discipline one of our kids today. Um, I didn't want to do it. Because it hurts me, but I know I have to do it. And um, it was for something that had to be corrected. But I want you to just think about, you know, I'm evil. I'm God is righteous. He's holy. And Jesus was the perfect one. And, and yet he, God poured out his wrath on him on the cross. In the Bible, we're going to see in just a little bit how... God had to turn his back on Jesus. He could not bear to see him as he suffered and, 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 and bear in his body the sins of the world. And so you can only imagine what Mary was going through, the emotions. That was her son who she carried in her womb and raised up. And even though she knew this day would come, it was still difficult to witness. But Jesus, I want you to notice even in the most appropriate time where he could be thinking about himself <laughs> while he suffered, his heart was on the welfare of others. His mom, in particular at this time, we know that John the Beloved, the, the, the writer of the Gospel of John, is also at the scene here on Calvary. And so Jesus says to her, woman, behold your son. He cared for his mother until the very end. And I want you to see Jesus and his 
heart for, for those he loves. And I want you to know he has that same heart for you. We're heading into difficult days, but I want you to understand that God, he's going to take care of us. He's going to make a way where there seems to be no way. I, I truly believe this, and I've seen it in my life. I've been young and I've been old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor a seed out begging bread. And Jesus, in his last hours on the cross, he was making sure that his mother would be taken care of. And I, I find it very uh, telling that he didn't, uh, he didn't leave the care of his mother to any other disciple, uh, save John the Beloved. He didn't even assume that his siblings, because he had siblings, he had other brothers and, and a sister, I believe. And, and um, he, but I believe that they had not yet come to faith. And I believe that Jesus knew that John would be the only one of the disciples who would die a natural death. I believe that he was covering every base that his mother would be taken care of until she would pass into eternity. We serve an awesome God who covers everything that we could ever need. And you see that he had such a closeness with John as well that he didn't have to say, hey, John, take care of my mother. He just had to imply, hey, woman, look at your new son. And John knew the assignment. John knew that he would take care of his mom, uh, his, his Lord's mom. And I'm telling you this, uh, uh, sometimes I wish that I would understand God's will as clearly as John, uh, John did here. And that, I believe, comes with intimacy with the Lord. When you get to know Jesus better, you understand his, his plans, you understand what he's saying, you understand his word, you have uh, special assignments given to you. This is what takes place here. The Bible talks about that. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. John fulfilled this duty, and he did so joyfully. What is it that Jesus has asked us to do? And we, we've not really done it yet. I was thinking about that. John was faithful to do what God called him, and he did so immediately. And uh, so we see that statement. We see that even in his last breaths on the cross, he was looking out for others, his mother. But I want you to move along with me to the next statement. Mark fifteen thirty four. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sky, the sun refused to shine in the sky as Jesus bare in his body the sin of the world. For the first time in all of history, in eternity, Jesus was separated from the Father. The Father had to turn away from Jesus he was forsaken so that you and I would never be forsaken. And I believe this was, was the most painful. This is the statement with the most, I believe, passion that Jesus spoke to. He, no doubt, was feeling physical pain, no doubt emotional distress, but the spiritual reality that God the Father 
had to turn away from him, had to forsake Jesus for that time, is what hurt him the deepest. He loved his father. He, he had that unity, the relationship through all of time. But for us, he was forsaken. And the Bible was clear that this was God's plan. This was the way for redemption. This was the, the, the ultimate payment for our sin was that Jesus would be rejected and despised so that we could be accepted. And I want you to just let that sink in tonight. There's never been a time in my life where God hasn't been there for me. And maybe there's times when I feel like I'm distant from him, but I always know he's there. And I want to tell you this, that's only because of the cross and what Jesus endured for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to keep moving. we got a few more statements. John 19, look at verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. I thirst. I want you to see that statement. I thirst. Jesus experienced the misery of thirst alongside these common criminals so that you and I could freely drink from the water of life. Physical thirst is something that I think we've all experienced at times and maybe to an extreme degree. And Jesus, here on the cross, several hours into his suffering, was experiencing physical thirst. But I begin to think about this. When you study in the Gospels, you see that oftentimes salvation is referred to as water. The Holy Spirit is referred to as water, the water of life. And in Revelation, it talks about that we can come and drink from the water of life freely. I think because of what Jesus was bearing in his body, what he was experiencing for this time, he was experiencing not only a physical thirst, but for the first time in his life, a spiritual thirst. You and I know people who are spiritually thirsty. They try to fill themselves up with pleasures. They try to fill themselves up with, with, with money and, and material things and all types of things, accomplishments, but they're still thirsty. I saw it again this week. And another celebrity who's trying to re- revitalize their career because they, they, they are thirsty. They are, they're hungry for the, the acknowledgement and to be relevant. And I'm telling you, people go through so much because they are spiritually thirsty. But for us who know Jesus, we are, we are blessed to have the satisfaction of the water of life that out of our bosom, like he told the woman at the well, were full rivers of living water. I've learned this when Christ is in his rightful place in my life, I am satisfied. No matter the circumstances. And this is, I think, embodied. I, I, I was reminded of the, the rich man and, and Lazarus, the story that Jesus shared in, in Luke's gospel. And what was the thing that that rich man who was in eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell, what was it that he asked for just for a drop of water. See, and 
In hell, everyone is thirsty. There's no hope. There's no relief. And this is why Jesus went through what he went through to experience this on our behalf. He was our substitute so that you and I could drink from the water of life freely. His blood was the payment, the only satisfactory payment for sin. I heard about a preacher who was speaking from the text. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Suddenly, there, he was interrupted by an atheist who asked, How can blood cleanse sin? For a moment, the preacher was silent. Then he countered, How can water quench thirst? The atheist says, I do not know, but I know that it does. And the preacher said, neither do I know how blood, how the blood of Jesus cleanses sin, but I know that it does. <laughs> He'd experienced it. And if you're saved tonight, you've experienced that Jesus' blood gives us forgiveness it it makes us acceptable before a holy righteous god and we are able to have fellowship and communion with him and this is what jesus accomplished for us he said i thirst but i want you to see he goes on and he says now when a vessel of sour wine was sitting there they filled a sponge with sour wine put it on hyssop and Put it to his mouth. So when Jesus received the sour wine, he drank the bitter cup for us. He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. Jesus had finished the salvation plan the 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 paid it was paid in full that statement is to tell us die it means to be paid in full it was an accounting term in that day and jesus said it was accomplished it is finished and it was his final word it was his cry of victory i believe that he rang that out i believe that he received the wine just so he had enough within him to say those words for the final breath that he would give that it is finished aren't you thankful it's finished tonight his finished work still stands today it is the foundation of our christian faith our debt has been paid in full by the righteous sacrifice of jesus christ he paid it all i was listening to it on repeat over and over today jesus paid it all all to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. Hey, if that doesn't excite you, you don't understand what you've been saved from. You don't understand the cost, like we sang it just a moment ago. I, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. Jesus paid it all. He said it is finished. He's finished. It was the conqueror's cry. He uttered it, the Bible says, with a loud voice. He cried it out. This was not a cry of anguish. This was a cry of accomplishment. He had finished the work. He had been faithful to run his race. And I want to just remind us of that as we look to his words on the cross, that it's finished. There needs to be nothing 
else added to his finished work. Not any religious act is necessary because he has accomplished it all. I've learned this. Christianity is not a religion. Religion is humans trying to work their way to God through good works. But Christianity is God coming to men and women through Jesus Christ. Hey, religion will tell you do this and do that. Be baptized. Take communion. Be be confirmed. Be baptized as an infant or be baptized as an adult. I'm telling you, they'll tell you to do all these things and maybe you will appease a righteous God. But do you know what Jesus said? It is finished. When he died on that cross, he finished salvation's plan. It is all done and we can stand before him secure. I'm thankful for that because if I could earn my salvation, I could lose it. And I would have already lost it and so would have you. (laughs) And I know the world, this isn't a popular message. This bloody, gruesome type of message of, of the cross, but I've heard the intellectual crowd say you can keep your bloody religion. I don't care about some carpenter from Nazareth who died on the cross. That's for the weak-minded, those who need a crutch in life to get by. The religious crowd says, I'm a member of such and such church. I've been baptized as an infant. I've lived a good life. I'm a moral person. I'm good enough to get to God on my own. My good works will outweigh my bad when I stand before him. But you know what the cross says? It is finished. That you cannot earn it. You are not good enough. That we all fall short. And that's why Jesus had to die in our stead. I'm so thankful for the cross. And God is, he's a good God and he is no respecter of persons. Anyone can come to him. He doesn't pick and choose losers in this thing. You can call on him, anybody. I don't care how far you have drifted. I don't care what you've done. He is able to save to the uttermost. He doesn't pick and choose his favors. I heard about a stewardess on a flight, uh, pre-flight instructions about the oxygen masks. And she said, in the event of sudden uh, cabin uh, failure or loss of pressure in the cabin, masks will descend from the ceiling. What she told them was to stop screaming, grab the masks, and pull it over your face. If you have a small child traveling with you, secure your mask first before assisting them with theirs. If you are traveling with more than one small child, pick your favorite. <laughs> I'm looking at my kids like, who are you going to pick, Dad? God doesn't pick favorites he wants to save everybody God is not willing that any should perish but that all come to repentance have you repented have you turned away from your sin and called out to God to save you to give you eternal life the cross says it is finished Jesus has accomplished it he's conquered Death by dying. And we're going to learn about it tomorrow. He conquers the grave by rising up from it. And I want you to just hear this out. I heard about a young lady. Her name was Mackenzie. And she was in Sunday school. And she wasn't trying to start a theological debate. But the teacher was making a point about the fact that Jesus is everywhere. And Mackenzie said, that just doesn't sound right to me. And she said to her teacher, not trying to be smart or disrespectful, she said, 
I know one place where Jesus isn't. <laughs> the teacher curiously replied, oh, oh, really? Where's that? This bright girl said, he's not in the grave. <laughs> now, we know he's omnipresent, but there's one place that he's chosen not to be any longer, and it's the grave. He's alive. We're going to learn. We're going to celebrate it tomorrow. And I want to encourage you to be in your place tomorrow as we lift him up, because you know why we, in, in this day and age, we, we worship on a Sunday, because that is the day that we believe that he rose from the grave, the first day of the week, when they went to the tomb, and they found the stone rolled away, and they found his, his burial clothes there, and the napkin folded on the top. Do you understand what that meant in that culture? When they would leave their napkin there, they're, they were saying, hey, I'm, I'm done. I will never be back in this place again. And I'm telling you, this is why we celebrate the cross. Because after the cross, he rose from the grave three days later, and he ever lived to intercede for us. Oh, praise him tonight. Praise him tonight. If you need Christ, oh, all you have to do is call on his name. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's that simple. You just place your faith like that thief on the cross. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And we've been hearing about that thief. Pastor mentioned him last night. And, and uh, when we get to heaven, he's going to be there. You know what's so encouraging to me is that He's going to be in the same heaven as any other person. He's not going to, I mean, there, there's just one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. It's through the one who died on that cross. So tonight, as we looked at the words, some of the words on the cross, let's be encouraged to live for his glory, the one who died for us. 